The next big thing is a Royal Society platform that takes place at the festival every year, where we not only get to hear from some of the world's leading scientists, but also discover more about their current research and their personal next big thing. We'll hear from six of the Royal Society Fellows, interviewed by climatologist Gabrielle Walker and neuroscientist Hannah Critchlow. First, we'll hear from Nicole Grobert and Alicia El Hajj. Nicole is a professor of nanomaterials at the University of Oxford, and she explains not only what nanomaterials are, but also their possible uses and applications. Alicia is a professor of cell engineering at the Healthcare Technologies at the University of Birmingham, and she discusses the benefits of a remote-controlled medicine. They talk to Gabrielle Walker. Nanomaterials, as the word says, it's a nano, and it's a nanomaterial, it's a small material. And materials, what are materials? Materials could be this cork, could be the glass in the bottle, wood, my blouse, paper. This is a material. The word nano only describes the size of the components that make up a material. And nano is the Greek word for small person. Uh, in terms of size, probably difficult to imagine how big a nanometer is if I tell you it's a billionth of a meter. But maybe you can refer to your nails, and they grow about a nanometer per second. How often do you cut your nails? Well, I cut them quite often because they often get dirty. But um, the other thing, your hair is between 50,000 or 100,000 nanometers, depending on where you come from or your ancestors came from. Now. Nanomaterials have been around for quite some time now, maybe 20 years roughly. They were first uh, kind of described in, in uh, no, 20 years ago. We can make them, we can readily make them, and you also find them in the news as, for example, the next um, drug to you know, save certain lives from certain diseases, or as, uh, for example, battery materials. Or you probably have heard about graphene. It's uh, been very popular in the news. The issue only um, is that we can make them at the laboratory scale, but scaling it up and having materials of consistent structure and properties is actually very challenging. And that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at how we can control the formation, how we can, con can control the individual atoms so that they form a structure that consistently performs in the same way at scale. Now, to just take that example, graphene. You've heard about it. It's a one layer, one atom thick layer of carbon. Uh, it can be made in two, probably two ways. Uh, you can describe it as a bottom-up or top-down approach. The top-down approach would be to take a graphite crystal, similar to this book, since we're at Hay, uh, and if you were to separate the individual pages, then each page would be a graphene sheet, so single carbon atom layer, in, arranged in sort of a chicken wire arrangement. Now, that's fine and good, but we're limited to the page size, which is not so good for applications. We usually need big, of high quality, meaning no defects. Now, we can grow it in the bottom-up approach, where we use hydrocarbons, sort of some gases, metal substrates, and heat, and then it's a self-assembly process where the, the chemical decomposes and the atoms reassemble into what we call graphene domains. And I've got the table math here. And these domains, they usually just grow on a metal surface randomly. So they're randomly arranged, which is also no good for an application because it's pretty very small. Now, what we really want to do is we want to scale up our graphene. 
<laughs> so I brought the tablecloth. <laughs> and um, the process is the same, and we have found means to increase the size from a few microns to several millimeters of a single crystal of graphene, which is pretty amazing. And we reduced the growth um, speed from 19 hours to about 15 minutes, which is superb. Now, but as you can see, I'm struggling here to stretch out this tablecloth in a way that you have no folds, because these folds are wrinkles that the graphene has also. Uh, that we don't want, because we have the graphene growing on a substrate, it's no use of a, of a metallic substrate, we need to remove it. And just the process of removing it is putting in more creases, folds and tears. So we have several ways of looking at that, and what we do to understand and actually control and scale up production for our end-user application is to look at the local chemistry, so we actually sniff out the gases in our reactors and we identify the molecules that make up our graphene and we exclude those that are only in the way and introduce defects and things that hinder uh, optimum growth. My next big thing, you're looking at me? Mm -hmm. um, the next big thing is I'd like to come up with what I call a growth systematic where that allows us to simply dial a nanomaterial for a desired application. So if an, uh, an application needs a very conductive or very lightweight material, then if we just we were just able to key in certain growth parameters and voila, we have the material to address our challenge. My prop is effectively us, because I'm going to talk about therapies for us. Um, in, in medicine, we're really familiar with the way drugs are developed, where, where the concepts of drug development have been well explained and, and interrogated. But there are still limitations, particularly in some fields where drugs don't really solve a solution. Um, I'm really interested in orthopedics, and there are examples of diseases such as osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, where early on it's very hard to prescribe a solution. So one of the things we look into is new ways we can tackle and new ways we can develop treatments for these type of diseases. And one of, the, um, one of the therapies that we've been spending a number of years looking at is trying to harness the potential of these cells that are present in your body. All of you have these unspecialized cells, which actually spend throughout your life, will spend a lot of time replenishing tissues, they'll be turning over tissues in your body, um, and they'll have a natural function within your body. But when things go wrong, sometimes they don't work so well, or sometimes they need some sort of assistance. So we've been looking at ways of taking these unspecialized cells, which are called stem cells, and you may have heard of that in the common literature, and actually using these for treating various tissues in your bodies, like cartilage and bone, um, and whether we can actually harness their potential. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that we have to control these cells. Whereas in many drugs, they're often um, identified and characterized and fully understood. When we look at cells, it's not, not quite so simple. There's a lot of elements about them that we still don't understand. But there's a lot of elements that we do understand. And trying to understand how to control those processes and behavior is really some of the major work that we've been doing. So one of the ways that we do that, and that's why I thought I'd tell you which is my next big thing, is we've been looking at ways whether we could actually remotely control stem cells in the body. And to do that, what we do is we take advantage of nanomaterials that we've heard a little bit about, and we use magnetic nanomaterials. And these are really tiny little nanoparticles in the order of nanometers in size. And what we can do is tag those onto specific receptors on the membranes of cells. 
And one of the neat things about these receptors is that they're mechanosensitive. So these would be the receptors that you actually, if you're going to go out for a run in the morning, these are the receptors that are being activated every time you do those very healthy things and your muscles and bones respond to it by having a positive response. So if we tag one of those little magnetic nanoparticles to a, a receptor in the membrane, what we can then do is oscillate that particle and it applies a little mechanical force onto the receptor and it activates all the downstream signaling pathways which set up a behavioral pattern in that cell. So how do we use that in a clinical therapy? Well, what we're looking at doing is ways where we can actually inject the cells with their particles on them into a tissue such as cartilage in your knee. Let's say you've got early osteoarthritis or early onset injury um, or damage to the knee. And we can then apply, after we've injected the cells onto the site, we can then apply a bandage around the outside which has magnets in it and it will apply an oscillating magnetic field which will control those tiny little particles on the cells in your knee. And they'll effectively switch them on. And they'll then go on to produce cartilage and repair the tissue that you have in, in that limb. So it, it, you know, it all sounds very hand-waving and sci-fi, but actually what we've been doing in our research is systematically looking to see whether this can really be a possibility. And we've been going through looking at the ways we can actually develop all the technology we need for that and also make sure that it's tuned to the right applications clinically. And at the moment, we're in preclinical trials and we're hoping to reach patients within the next two to three years. Oh. So my next big thing is what we call remote control healing. And it's maybe a, a completely new way of looking at how we can provide therapies for the future. Let's start with Alicia and the remote controlled medicine. I mean, it, it sounds extraordinary. It does sound like science fiction. You say that it could be with us in a couple of years. I wanted to unpick a little bit. So you talk about unspecialized cells, stem cells. You mean that they haven't already decided that they're going to be a bit of a heart or a bit of a... Of a, of a skin or anything, but so most of the cells in our bodies have already decided what they're going to be. That's right. Yes, yes. So we, we in, in, there, are, it, most tissues have unspecialized cells in small numbers. So most of your your tissues will. But we also have a huge uh, population of cells which are in the bone marrow. So um, this is a source of, of many unspecialized cells, which we can actually then differentiate or turn into different tissues in the body. So they're, so, they're sort of the jack of all trades. They can turn their hand to anything. You just need to tell them what you want them to be. Yes. That's, and that's why they're so, they're so useful. Okay. Yes. So then the next part of that is if you have those cells, then you can not just tell them what to be by injecting them in the right place, but also tell them when to do it. Mm -hmm. Now, why, does, why do you need to activate them? If, if you inject them, why don't they just sort of do their thing? Okay, so one of the things that happens normally when you have um, a stem cell is that it'll be in the right environment which cues it. So we call it a niche. Effectively, the stem cell niche is very important for influencing what it becomes. If you suddenly take that cell and put it into an injury in your knee, it doesn't have its little cozy environment and all the cues it needs. So effectively, we have to replace those and give them the signals that they need. Right. So that, that's the push to say this is what you need yeah, to do now. Yeah, and also make sure it doesn't turn into anything else, which is very important. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is there a possibility that you'd end up with a bit of elbow in your knee? <laughs> no, 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 absolutely not. And that's something we have to make sure doesn't happen. Yeah. So, so you're getting close to the clinical trials. Um, uh, what, what, what are the next steps? What needs to happen for it to go from there to being something that you could actually go along and get from your GP? 
Well, I mean, the vision that we have is the long-term vision. So this isn't a short-term two-year, but a long-term vision, is that we could actually move into a GP clinic-type environment. Mm. And there, there it would be an injectable solution. At the moment, what we're doing is looking whether we can actually use it as part of a transplantation process. Wow. So the example would be in fracture repair in your, in your bone or in cartilage repair after an injury. So at the moment, what we've got to do is, is essentially get all the regulatory approvals, we have to go through the whole process that people go through when you're trying to get acceptance of adoption in the hospital. You know, your tablecloth is of the order of millimetres. But for materials that we're going to use in the world, we need them to be bigger, right? Not necessarily. So um, what sort of thing would you use where you, where you had pieces of it that were a millimetre? So, possibly not graphene, but other, there are other layered systems, uh, layered materials that have different types of properties that we could use, for example, in nanoelectronics. And there, the material can be very small. That's not an issue at all. Or, for example, in composites, if you a composite material is where you have a matrix material and then you put something inside to make that material either stronger, stiffer, or magnetic, or you add functionality by adding a filler material. And this filler material is often nano, at the nanometer scale. And then that interaction between the matrix it's a bit like, how can I put it, if you have maybe custard with nuts, the flavor is different than when you just have vanilla custard without the nuts or raisins. <laughs> um, and that interaction is quite important on how the nanomaterial interacts with the custard. Um, so it doesn't, that the nuts don't all settle at the bottom of the bowl, but it's nicely distributed and you get the flavor that you want all the time. Brilliant. So, I mean, could you, could you make building material or... or Clothes yeah, so people have looked into um, modifying concrete with carbon nanofibers or actually road surfaces that are then noise reducing or, or um, that help the cars to run more smoothly. Akila Mavalanka is an experimental physicist leading a fabrication and characterization research program to develop an addressable array of X-ray sources. Here she explains the development of a more adaptable and flexible X-ray machine. Adi Keelot is a senior project manager within the Genomics Pipelines Group and researches insect-transmitted plant diseases. They talk to Hannah Critchlow. Um, an X-ray is basically a shadowgram, um, by which I mean um, it uses the fact that different materials absorb and therefore transmit X-rays to different amounts. Um, and what you have is, for example, if you're imaging something like this hand or this hand uh, and you have an X-ray source on one side, it passes light, the X-ray light through uh, and the different components in the hand absorb and that transmit different amounts. That's why it looks grayscale, black and white, on the detector, which captures the shadow. Mm. You can also make X-rays 3D by moving this X-ray tube around in different angles and getting multiple points of view and then reconstructing a 3D model of whatever object you're looking at. Um, now, our source at Adaptics is doing the same thing, getting depth 3D information, but we also want to reduce the size and weight mm -hmm. to make this technology more portable. Because usually patients will have to be transported to the whole X-ray yeah. department, yeah. So yeah. where there's a massive machine Absolutely. that they have to kind of almost clamber into in order yeah. to be x yeah. yeah. So think about a CT scanner. A CT is based on X-ray technology. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's that big is because it's, it has a big heavy tube which is spun around 360 degrees, capturing lots of 2D images of whoever or whatever is being imaged inside of it. And that's why patients have to go to these big heavy machines 
to be fair, portable machines do exist, but they tend to be 2D. So you're choosing between a poor quality 2D image, which can be brought to the patient. Mm -hmm. That can be important in bedside imaging when you're in a nursing home or an ICU, when the patient can't necessarily go to the machine. Mm -hmm. So that's choice one. Or choice two is this big, heavy CT scanner, which is expensive, can cause delays. Delays mean a delayed diagnosis, a lot of anxiety, of course, for the, for the patient and their family. Yeah. Um, and most patients or some patients can't go to them. Um, the reason I have this hand phantom over here with me is because uh, I thought it would be cool to give an example of, this is actually an x-ray phantom, so it's used uh, to train medics or to test equipment, and it's been a, f a fault called the scaphoid bone fracture has been deliberately introduced into it because it's so common and gets missed in 40% of the first initial exam of that fracture. Ah, can I, where is it? I can't see it. It's, it's, it's so small that it needs <laughs> an x-ray to see it. Ah, <laughs> it's a proper test. <laughs> yeah, it's a proper test. But... It, it's tricky enough that just a 2D, because in 2D what happens is it's a three-dimensional object, mm -hmm. but you're only getting a flat XY planar picture, right? And that means everything in here is being superposed and being squashed into one picture. And that's why 3D is good, because what you get is Z depth information by getting multiple, as they're called, slices through that. And we're ah, seeing perfect. movies here yes. going through that Z stack. Yeah, so that's, a, that that's a big trotter. Mm -hmm. um, we have lots of weird bits of frozen meat which we got from the butcher butchers in our lab and <laughs> he was actually going to bring in some of this frozen meat to the hay festival but uh, thankfully we got this instead <laughs> um so what we have on the left is a 2d image of the big trotter and the video you have playing on the right is slices calculated from 2d images taken from our source um, our source looks a bit like that this is just a plastic mock-up um, which is why I can hold it up that, that quickly. But so this is your new X-ray machine. That's right. This is it yeah. in its entirety. Yes, a plastic mockup of our X-ray machine. Yep. In in the in correct everything. size. Correct That's size. Correct, correct representation. Size. That's right. So it's it's meant to be a desktop unit. This is meant for hand orthopedic imaging. So you know, in a ski resort, for example, when people quite uh, often fracture extremities, you need something available. You can put things in quickly and get a quick picture. And what you have here at the bottom is our X-ray scanner, mm -hmm. which is stationary. It's not moving, as you'll notice. And what you, sorry, that's the other way around. Ah, yes, that's the source at the top, and that's the detector. You can't see the colors from here, I can. <laughs> and so normally, yeah. the technology that people mm -hmm. would be used to mm -hmm. using is an entire room full of equipment. Exactly. In order yeah. to take yeah. something on a cart, maybe if it's portable, mm -hmm. but something certainly not desktop. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas what our technology is doing is making things desktop. And the way we do it is by taking out the moving components, basically, and replacing them by a stationary source, which still gets depth information, but by replacing one moving tube by a multiple number of stationary sources which get fired one by one. Mm -hmm. So you still get the angular depth information you need to get the 3D model but without having to move around heavy bits of things. Most of the public knows about insect-transmitted human diseases or even animal diseases like malaria, um, dengue fever, Zika virus become a bit known. But not a lot of people know that it's actually most of the problems that we have with insects in agriculture are com come from these pathogens that they transmit. This is the, well, apart from wind, this is the major transmission <coughs> let's say, venue for pathogens into plants because plants don't sneeze at each other. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but for years we didn't even know how to, we didn't have the tools to really study these and 
well, mainly we've just been using a lot of insecticides and um, what you were saying about satellite images. Mm. We, we use uh, greenhouses and plastic houses and now the south of, south, south of Spain, you can see from a satellite image, it, we call it the plastic island. But so obviously this was not working. And now we have technologies to be able to isolate and see that a lot of these are major viruses and some bacteria and some now we've, we again we've defined it as bacteria but it's really really new findings that we see it's something between let's say a bacteria and a fungi um, all these things cannot survive outside a host cell so they know how to infect either the insect or the plant but we can't grow them on a plate so until now that we have all these uh, DNA and RNA sequencing tools we can take a plant or an insect and sequence everything in it and then discover that apart from plant DNA, it also has, okay, it has this bacterial DNA and has this viral DNA. And now we can finally prove, yes, this is what this disease is. And again, with 3D imaging and microscopy, we can, oh, even, I hope you can see it well, but this is um, a picture of a leafhopper nymph. It's a leafhopper baby. And we can image the, uh, the, in this case, the bacteria inside it using 3D imaging and you can see that it, in this case, this is really, really fresh results and really cool. What you see here is a, as a protein that the bacteria secretes inside the insect, and it goes to the, if you see it in the insect head, it's in the digestive system, but also in the head, and we think it really affects their, I didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> it really affects their behavior, and, you know, it makes them better transmitters. A lot of times we see a difference in the insect behavior once it acquired a disease or something. It will How does it become a better transmitter? For instance, uh, I used to work with these uh, with white flies that usually they really like yellow color and they really like, so already diseased plants are usually yellow. And the white flies will go to these yellow plants and acquire a certain virus and suddenly they don't like yellow plants anymore, they like green plants. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of times when they find a good food source they will stay, but in this case no, suddenly they become, they want to travel, they want to see the world so they start moving on and they start moving to green plants and this is again a way of this in this case a virus it goes and it changes something in the insect behavior mm -hmm. and make it a better transmitter i think that's fascinating as a neuroscientist what <laughs> can your type of research tell us a little bit about how different behaviors can be transmitted through infectious diseases do you think there's much crossover maybe i don't know i they, i know that they use a lot of time they use drosophila uh, brains to image and try and work out and even test drugs mm -hmm. for the human brain. However, there's a lot about insects that we don't know. And these are not, I don't know, Drosophila is a kind of fly, it's what we call a model organism. So everybody, it's very simple, it only has four very small chromosomes and it's very easy to grow it in the lab. So that's why when we first started working with insects in the 70s, 80s, people went to Drosophila. But these ones, I don't know if you can see in the bar, it's this bar is uh, half a millimeter. This whole nymph is less than a millimeter in size. Mm. These are really, really tiny insects, and but they have really big genomes. And so they have a lot more complexity in their mm. brain, which I don't know if it's the same. Um, mm. For sure, what again, I started studying immune system of insects, and it's completely different than the human one. But there <laughs> seems to be a growing kind of concern over the use of pesticides. Do you think that your research might someday help us to come up with a more natural type of pesticide? Well, that's what we're aiming for, but it's not an, a simple answer. So mm. far, what we're seeing is a lot, there's a lot of specificity between, like, again, in the image here, we see a certain bacteria that will only be transmitted by a certain species of leafhoppers. And so the interaction is so uh, intricate, so how would you say, intimate, 
So even if we find a way to stop this one, it might not work for another disease or another mm -hmm. crop, and which is not good. But I think this is also what we need to do. We need to use less general insecticides or pesticides. We need to really pinpoint problems. Um, but hopefully, yeah. At the moment, we get less, uh, more and more insecticides being banned, and we're not ready yet. We don't have the tools yet, but hopefully. Gemma Mordinos is an honorary senior lecturer at King's College London. Her work explores the neural biology of psychosis and understanding the brain mechanisms involved in making people vulnerable to mental health disorders. Rachel Lowe is assistant professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. Her research helps public health decision makers predict when and where epidemics of mosquito-transmitted diseases might happen. She's speaking here in 2018, and her next big thing is rather prescient given what happened to the world in 2020. They talk to Hannah Critchlow. What's psychosis to start with? Um, so psychosis does not mean split personality, and it does not mean multiple, multiple personality disorder. That's a common misconception, so it doesn't mean that. We put it away, never think about it again. Um, psychosis, what it means, it, it's a term that refers to a loss of contact with reality. So um, that and common symptoms of this loss of contact with reality can be hallucinations. So very common ones are verbal hallucinations. The person may hear voices, for example, when in the absence of an actual voice talking around. Um, and then delusions as well. So, for example, um, being very strongly convinced that the uh, that someone that 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 we are being uh, followed and that our uh, computers are being backed and that um, the MI5 is 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 on to uh, get us, for example. And uh, so these are some of the characteristic symptoms. And what we do, uh, specifically in my lab, we are interested in understanding the role that the brain mechanisms involved in how we process emotion and how we interact with other people, how these circuits may be involved in making someone vulnerable to develop a psychotic disorder. And uh, we do this using uh, a really advanced state-of-the-art brain imaging methods. Uh, that allow us to look non-invasively at brain structure, brain function, also different levels of chemicals in the brain. And we can combine these different uh, types of measures of information about brain uh, characteristics with then the experiences of the individual, the subjective experience, the environment, also some blood markers and genetic information to try and really find out what is the role of, of uh, what makes someone more vulnerable and whether targeting these systems could be a new way to find new therapies uh, for psychosis. Uh, to prevent it or to, or to delay, delay it. But the next big thing in the field is what's called precision psychiatry. And it's basically a new approach to how we diagnose and how we treat mental health disorders. It's fueled by these advances in neuroscience to really understand the mechanisms that make different people vulnerable and how. And, uh, and to better allocate treatments that already exist, which work well for some people, they don't work very well so for some of the people. And at the moment, the clinician has to make a guess. A very well-trained, very, you know, obviously it's a clinician, it's a person who's d done an extensive training, but it's a guess. But thanks to these new technologies and to the new technology and how we analyze the data with artificial intelligence, machine learning that finds patterns in the data, we'll be able to make 
personalized decisions and really have a, a major impact in society in the way that mental health disorders are, are approached. Is that really possible? Yes, it will be possible to, it will definitely be possible to stratify people based on the, the, the risk for what and how to best target them for sure. Mm-hmm. And this will be, thank f- so it's related to what Rachel was saying, it's about guiding the clinical decision, the clinical practice, not about substituting clinical practice. So, uh, you know, it will be possible f- at the moment, s- think about cardiology or oncology. You would go see a cardiologist and you would say, you know, this is my age, this is my gender, these are my habits, this is, and then they would measure your cholesterol levels and other variables, would put them into a computer and they, they would get a, a prediction of the risk of uh, uh, you having a heart attack in the next say five years and that's something that's been missing in the field of psychiatry but with the and the way in we can you know measure cellular and molecular processes we can also examine blood try there's already identified markers in blood for certain types of um, causes leading to psychotic disorders and this information will be very helpful for clinicians Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you know with machine learning algorithms for example what it does this artificial intelligence there's different types of it but one of them is uh, able to look at the data and getting together patterns from smartphone use if you are maybe feeling uh, a bit low in mood you might type slower you might engage less in social media combining that with biological measures with you know brain uh, measures it will be able to create a a prediction algorithm of uh, someone being at certain risk and also to target better the treatments that exist and also inform the development of, of new ones. Mosquito, which is the Spanish word for little fly, actually kills more people a year than snakes, jellyfish, lions and crocodiles put together. But it's not the mosquito itself, it's the potentially deadly diseases that it transmits which makes them so dangerous. So this particular mosquito, it's called the Aedes aegypti species, and you can distinguish this from other mosquitoes because it has white markings on its legs. So this were, became famous for transmitting the yellow, yellow fever virus. Um, but as well as yellow fever, it's also capable of transmitting dengue, chikungunya, and Zika. And in fact, the recent Zika epidemic in 2015-16 was so widely spread in the Americas due to this mosquito. So this particular mosquito enjoys uh, urban environments. So it thrives um, breeding in artificial containers uh, that you can find in and around the home, things like discarded tires, flyer po- flower pots, gutters. And so it's very in, it likes to live in very close contact with people. And this particular species is now one of the most widely spread around the world. And about half the world's population is living in areas infested with this mosquito. And there are several reasons why this has become so widespread in the last 30 years. One of those reasons is down to international travel and trade, which has allowed both people and mosquitoes to spread all around the globe. Another reason is population growth and urbanization. So by 2050, there'll be 2.5 billion people living in cities. And most of this growth is expected to happen in Asia and in Africa. Another reason is environmental change. So the mosquitoes are very sensitive to temperature, precipitation change, land use changes. 
So for example, in the Amazon rainforest, uh, deforestation and uh, illegal gold mining is changing the ecosystem and placing migrant workers in very close contact with mosquitoes and pathogens that they haven't been exposed to before. So the next big thing in my field is to do with pandemic preparedness and how we can confront the globalization and the climate change that we're experiencing and try and adapt our societies to confront these natural and human-induced disasters. So we don't know exactly when and where the next epidemic will happen, but we can improve our preparedness by investing in better tools, in early warning and response systems, by combining big data with supercomputer power and unconventional data streams, things like tweets or people searching for symptoms of particular diseases might give us an indication of hotspots where diseases might be occurring and trying to incorporate these novel data streams and bring them into our, our models to produce robust information for decision makers. The long-term goal would be to be able to predict diseases like we predict the weather but that has relied on over a century of collecting very detailed data, automating that data, and it's still not possible to get that right. So I think we're a long way of developing a global disease prediction system, but it's something that um, we would like to work towards to try and protect ourselves from future global threats like Ebola outbreaks, Zika, dengue and yellow fever. Thanks for listening. You can hear the full events and over 8,000 more on the Hay Player on our website. The Hay Festival podcast is brought to you by our friends at Bailey Gifford Investment Managers and next week we'll be looking at Europe.